The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Alan Kolak. He is a professor of ecotoxicology at the University of Idaho. He's director emeritus of the Idaho Water Resources Research Institute and author of Modern Poisons, A Brief Introduction to Contemporary Toxicology. Prior to his position in Idaho, he was on the faculty at the University of Nebraska and director of the Center for Environmental Health and Toxicology in the University of Nebraska's College of Public Health. He was also director of the Nebraska Watershed Network at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. He is also one of the editors of the journal Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry. He holds a Ph.D. in environmental biology from the University of Colorado in Boulder. His research interests include citizen science, water and public health, invertebrates as environmental sentinels, and environmental epidemiology. I learned about his work from a fellow dietitian who informed me that he was among 250 researchers and dozens of public health and environmental groups urging the U.S. Geological Survey to reconsider moves to reduce the number of chemicals it tracks and to release updates less frequently. Dr. Kolak relied on USGS data for his research into pediatric cancer incidents and pesticide use in the Western United States, and we'll dive into that in our conversation. Welcome, Dr. Kolak. Hello, Melinda. Happy to be here. Well, I think we should start out with you explaining a little bit about your work. What exactly is ecotoxicology, and what sparked your interest in this field? That's a great question. Well, if we think about the term toxicology, what toxicology is, is simply the study of poisons, the study of toxic compounds. Therefore, ecotoxicology is the study of toxic compounds in the environment. So how do those compounds move? What's their fate? Where do they go? Do they degrade over time in the environment? Do they settle into the sediment or the soil and stay there for years or decades? How do those chemicals move around? So that's really what ecotoxicology deals with. And then, as you mentioned in that very flattering introduction, I'm also interested in taking those kind of questions and applying them or looking at them through the lens of public health. Well, as a dietitian, I am very interested in not only the foods that we eat, but how they were produced any toxins that might be in them, and how they persist in the environment and have interconnectedness to all of the life around us. So your work really intrigued me. And I dove into your book, and of course, it starts out with the dose makes the poison. And that tenet has been challenged recently. I would say that the person who woke me up to this idea that actually it's more complicated than that, was a researcher you may know, Fred Vomsal, who studied BPA. And he said, the dose makes the poison a lot of times, like alcohol is a good example. 
the more we consume, the more toxic the effects on the body. But for things like BPA and other endocrine disruptors, we can find responses at very low doses and perhaps less so at high doses. Tell me your perspective on this, tenet. Well, Fred's spot on in what he was talking to you about. And I'd just like to back up for a second and just mention the fact that the reason that I wrote the book, Modern Poisons, was because there have been uh, eventualities that have happened in the field of toxicology within, let's say, the past 20 years, such as what Dr. Von Saal was talking to you about, where the conventional toxicology, the things that we understood from Paracelsus, who was the originator of the term dose makes the poison, which happened back in the late 1700s, that applies in a broad sense. But there are many, many chemicals and many toxic interactions where that doesn't really apply. And Melinda, it's interesting because when you were just talking about that, it snapped in my memory kind of the parallel between Newtonian physics, right? Newton sitting under a tree and having an apple fall on his head, and Einsteinian physics, the whole idea of light, for example, being both a particle and a wavelength. Well, Newtonian physics fits 95, 90% of all the physical actions that happen to us on a day-to-day basis. However, to really understand what's going on in nature, you have to bring in Einsteinian physics. So it's very similar. And again, this was my point in my book, Modern Poisons. It's very similar in toxicology. If we were to talk about something like arsenic or nitrates or mercury, the toxicity and the toxicology of those chemicals is fairly well understood and fairly well known. However, when we start to talk about things like bisphenol A or polyfluorinated alkyl substances, PFAS, which has been in the news a lot recently, those are starting to push that, if you will, Einsteinian physics kind of boundaries of toxicology where they're not really behaving in the way that we really would expect them to behave given our old conventional toxicology. I also want to bring in another point, and that has to do with an index that you developed, the Environmental Burden Index. That adds another layer of complexity into the toxicity equation in that we typically look at one particular toxin at a time and how that affects a research animal. But rarely do we look at the combination of toxins acting together. And that's something that you bring forth in your research papers, especially when you talk about pediatric cancers. Melinda, you've clearly done your homework and you've hit it spot on again. You're, you're absolutely right. And it's, I think, one of the fields, kind of going back to my book and going back to this idea of kind of the outer limits of toxicological understanding is when we start dealing with mixtures of how chemicals behave and interact with each other, both in the environment and then also in us or in biotic organisms, our pets, wildlife, fish, whatever, how those behave together is a really difficult thing to address. 
Now, relative to the index that we developed that you just brought up, we were interested in asking a very simple question. And the question was, can you look at the pesticides used in a state and then by looking at the pesticide profile, just what's used there, can you take that information and amalgamate it statistically so that you can then contrast that to incidences of cancer within that same geographic area? That's where we wanted to go. And we were surprised that Except for a few studies, not much has been done in that field. So our work was fairly novel from that perspective. Right. Well, it's my understanding that the Environmental Protection Agency looks at single toxins and probably not for long enough time. Well, when you mean for long enough time, if you mean exposure to a person chronically. Yes. You can envision that for the EPA to do that, they can use model organisms, things like rodents, so they can use a proxy organism and then factor in some safety factors because we're not rodents. So you need to have some sort of assurance that there's a similarity. But with that, you're going to need to keep rodents in an environment, in a laboratory for years. Now, certainly they have a much shorter lifespan than humans do. But you're still going to have to house those animals and expose those animals for multiple years, meaning that those experiments are incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. And who's going to pay for that? Is the American public through taxes or the Canadian public or anyone else willing to pay to have those safeguards? How are we going to do that? And that is a very real concern moving forward relative to chemical safety. Right. Well, I know that you use the USGS maps in your studies looking at cancer incidents and environmental burdens, especially looking at pesticides. First, share the results with your research on this. And I believe you looked at populations in the Western United States as well as in Nebraska specifically. Is that correct? We actually looked at the Western United States and Idaho specifically. And Idaho. Okay. I do have colleagues in Nebraska that are doing parallel studies, and I still collaborate with them. So you could, in a way, add Nebraska to this mix as well. Good. But what we found is that if you divide the Western United States in two, so you have the far west, which would be the Pacific, places like California, Oregon, Washington, and then you look at the Rocky Mountain West, places like Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, they have very, very different pesticide profiles. The pesticides used in the Pacific and the pesticides used in the heartland of the West, fundamentally different. It's not so much that they're using completely different pesticides, but the amount of pesticides of each type is very, very different. In the heartland of the West, they're predominantly using things like herbicides, atrazine, glyphosate, 2,4-D, metolachlor. They're using herbicides, chemicals that kill weeds effectively. And they're using that because what they're growing, and again, I'm painting with a very thick brush here, but what they're growing is animal feed. They're growing corn and they're growing soybeans for animal feed. Now, when you move to the Pacific, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, California, 
they don't grow as much feed. They're growing human food. That's where the orchards are. That's where the great vineyards are in Oregon and Washington and in California. That's where the apple orchards are. Idaho is known for its potatoes. That's where food is grown. Now, when you make that shift, there is also a shift in the chemicals that are used. So instead of being an herbicide-dominated environment, it becomes either a fungicide or a fumigant-dominated environment. So if you think about it from the residents that are living in those states, the residents are experiencing, and I'm not talking about someone who works occupationally out in the field. I'm talking about the guy who runs the grocery store, right? The guy who is not a field worker. Their environment, however, is their pesticide load is different depending on whether you live in California or Washington or whether you live in Wyoming or Montana. And it was really that simple of a question that we were asking. First of all, is it different? And the answer is yes. And then the second is, does that tend to be related to cancers? And we looked at two different measures of cancer. We looked at total cancers where we just threw all cancers together. And I recognize that has some statistical problems with it. And then we also looked at pediatric cancers. And what we found was that the pediatric cancers had a tendency, so were correlated with higher levels of the type of pesticides used in the Pacific West, California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, much more so than they were in the heartland of the West, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, places like that. Mm. Dr. Kolak, let me take one break. I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Alan Kolak. He is a professor of ecotoxicology at the University of Idaho, and he is the author of Modern Poisons, A Brief Introduction to Contemporary Toxicology. Well, I'm really glad that you are looking at pediatric cancers. And I want to just share a story since you were in Nebraska. Many years ago, I was on a farm in Marquette. It's Dave Vetter's grain place. And he had a field day. And one of the gentlemen on the tour said he switched to organic farming because he noticed so many children on his rural county road had suffered from brain cancers. And it's not the first time we've seen cancer rates higher among, say, people that spread some of these poisons. But to look at the pediatric population, I think, is critical. And if I'm understanding correctly, those U.S. geological survey maps really made it possible for you to draw those connections. Well, the beauty of the maps, and it's not just the maps. The maps are also linked to the actual data. So you can go in and download a file, and that file will tell you for a given county, in a given state, in a given year, how much glyphosate was used. So it's really valuable information. Now, Melinda, relative to the question that you just asked, and you're right, gosh, I, I have so many things that I want to say, and we have such a short amount of time. But one thing I think your listenership might be interested in knowing is this situation is very analogous to cigarette smoking. And what I mean by that is if you have a chronic cigarette smoker who develops a disease and goes to the doctor, the doctor can say to that smoker, how many cigarettes a day, how many years? So they can get a very good exposure. 
they know how much nicotine, how much smoke that person has inhaled, plus or minus a fairly tight variation. However, if you go to someone who doesn't smoke, such as me, and I lived in the era when you used to go to bars and the bars would be full, full of smoke. So if someone was to say to me, okay, Alan, how much secondhand smoke have you been exposed to in your lifetime? I have no idea. Because when you have that kind of indirect exposure, very, very difficult to determine the link between cigarette smoke and should I develop it, my emphysema, right? Mm -hmm. Now think about that relative to pesticides, as you were just saying. With pesticides, if you have an occupational hazard where you have an applicator, that applicator can say, okay, I was on the back of that truck X number of days per year, X number of years, and I wore this kind of protective garb. Again, we can develop a pretty good relationship between pesticide exposure in those individuals and the chemical, because we know the amount of time and the distance and all that. How about the guy working at the grocery store? How are we going to do it for him? It's a vexing, vexing problem. Really difficult. That's the beauty of the USGS pesticide data. Is it an exposure? No, it's not. It's a proxy. It's a facsimile. It's close to being. It's related to exposure. But it's the best thing that we have for incidental exposure to pesticides of individuals living in environments where pesticides are applied, which in the United States means every single state in the country. Right. Well, I think that we are really at risk of losing this critical data, or at least losing its potency. And I think that certainly joining together with researchers and public health professionals to contact their representatives and ask them to reinstate these maps. What do you recommend we do to keep the value of these maps and to keep the level of data as high as it was? What you just said is spot on. If this is important to your listenership, by all means, talk to your political agents in Washington, D.C., and, and let them know that this is valuable to you. And again, we're living at a time where we now have the statistical capacity to make use of this information. And it would really be a shame to have that effectively taken away. And the point is not here to point fingers at any given industry or at any given state. It's just a question of the data provides a mechanism by which scientists such as myself can do inquiry-based research where we can actually ask fundamental questions. Without these data, we can't ask the questions. We're not trying to put anyone out of business. We're not trying to close anyone down. We're just trying to ask questions regarding the health of the American public. That's really what we're interested in. Right. It's interesting that you said that because one of the questions I have for you is, do you see any movement towards policy change as the result of your conclusions from your research? The short answer to that is no. And I don't mean that to sound overly negative. Part of the reason is, well, there's really two reasons. The first is that our study just came out a year ago. So 
from the perspective of science information lifespan, it's a newborn, right? It's just gotten out there. Not that many people have seen it. It, it. it will take time if indeed it winds up having significance. So that's one part of it. The second part is that this field of, if you will, from my perspective, now I'm not an, an epidemiologist, but I'm going to use the term because I emphasize the environmental part of it more so than the epidemiological part. But from the perspective of environmental epidemiology, this is a new field. And we're really starting to ask these questions on either a regional Western United States or a statewide state of Idaho or a nationwide level of, are our exposures all the same? And it's very clear whether we're talking about pesticides or PFAS or whether we're talking about other exogenous anthropogenic chemicals, the answer is no. We don't all live in the same environment. Now, I just have to add after saying that, that as we're all very well aware, concerns regarding diversity, inclusion, and equity are very, very important to all of us. Therefore, the questions of if these aren't uniformly distributed, are there subpopulations in the country that maybe are bearing a greater load of these chemicals than others? And if that's true, is that fair or is that appropriate? Or are we as a society okay with that? And again, I'm not saying that I have the answer to that today, but I'm saying those are the kind of questions that we can approach with these data. If these data are no longer available, it's going to just be much, much more difficult for us to approach those type of questions. And I think as a scientist, that's a tragedy. I agree. You mentioned PFAS, and I would put that under the umbrella of a term you used, chemicals of emerging concern. What other chemicals would you add to that list? Oh, boy, there are so many. There is a chemical out here in the Pacific Northwest, 2-PPD quinone, which is the salmon killer. It's a chemical that runs off of roads, and when it gets into small streams and rivers, it absolutely decimates aquatic wildlife. I would put that as an emerging chemical. And then there are, as I said, there are scores of others. So I'll just leave it at that. I think I would add the nano-sized particles of plastic to that list too. What do you think? Absolutely. 100%. And you know, that's also, Belinda, an interesting point. And I'm glad you brought that up. Because when you think about what is a chemical, Right. And we can all say, all right, carbon dioxide, CO2 is a chemical compound. And then you can say, okay, sugar, glucose, glucose, fructose, the disaccharide sugars. Okay. They're chemical compounds. Well, as chemicals get larger and larger and larger, at what point do they leave the field of being chemicals and fall into the field of being particulates? So if you think about things like particulate matter, that's 10 microns in diameter that's in the atmosphere that's known as PM10. Is that a particle or is that a chemical? Well, the EPA regulates it in a lot of ways as if it's a chemical because it can create adverse health outcomes if it's inhaled. Similarly, relative to what you were just talking about regarding microplastics, are microplastics, which are really just 
pieces of plastic that have fractionated into smaller and smaller and smaller bits, are those tiny pieces acting as chemicals or are they acting as particles? Does that matter? Does the particle, if you think about the particle as like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, the particle may be the bread, but that particle may be coated with chemicals that are like the peanut butter and jelly. What's more important toxicologically? Those are the kind of questions where 2023 toxicology is not what Paracelsus was dealing with in the 1780s. We're into a completely new arena today. Exactly. We are essentially out of time. I want to direct people to your book because at the end of your book, you mentioned something that is critically important, and that is that climate change is a toxic enabler. And we could do a whole other show on that. But just to direct our listeners to that concept that we need to be thinking about, what what do you want to leave our listeners with? Well, believe it or not, I want to leave your listeners with a ray of hope. And that is this. Medicine today is better than it has ever been in history. In 1900, the lifespan of the average American was 48. I'm 65 now. I would have been dead almost 20 years had I lived in 1900. So my point is, and it's not to minimize, Melinda, everything we just talked about, but I don't think we want to lose the forest from the trees. Does that mean that we just take a laissez-faire attitude and everything's wonderful and we, like an ostrich, we dunk our head in the sand? No, of course not. Toxicology has changed and things have changed and we need to keep up with that change and we need to maintain a vigil on that change. However, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that we are the healthiest people that have ever lived on planet Earth throughout our history. Well, I think it's also important that we look at history and what took us from having that lower lifespan to one that is greater and not losing those protections that we've had over the years. You're absolutely right. And I actually wrote down my two take-home messages. I've told you my first, and you just hit on my second. And that is the fact that if we think about food, drug, medical safety, we are always, unfortunately, it's just the reality of the field, we are always reactive. We are always behind. There's always a tragedy, a disaster, and we as regulators are scrambling to figure out how to remediate that disaster. In a way, it's almost like we're the U.S. disaster service, right? Where we're coming in after a disaster and trying to fix the problem. It's just the nature of the endeavor. We, by definition, and in fact, my next book is going to be called Generally Regarded as Safe, and it's going to document this last 120 years of how we have always been behind relative to food, drug, medical safety, and we're always playing catch up with the burgeoning technology. It's just like today in 2023, what do we do with artificial intelligence? We're behind the ball and we're scrambling to make sure that artificial intelligence doesn't ruin our society, so to speak. Well, that's where environmental toxicology has been for the last 120 years. Dr. Kolak, unfortunately, we're out of time. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Alan Kolak, professor of ecotoxicology at the University of Idaho. He is the author of Modern Poisons, A Brief Introduction to Contemporary Toxicology. I will provide a link to that. Melinda, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.